Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Future Construct Podcast. I am your host, Amy Peck, and we have back by popular demand one of my favorite guests, Hugh Seaton, who is the CEO of The Link, which is a construction software. Welcome back, Hugh. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So we ran super long last time and and still had to stop short because we were having such a fun conversation. So I'd like to do that again. And, you know, you have so much expertise. I don't even know where to start. We, we, we did on the last podcast, a little bit of your history. So why don't we start from kind of now forward, but, you know, you have such broad experience in AI and, there's so much talk about what AI can and can't do. And then there's fear that it's going to take over our lives, but you know, I don't really think it's there yet. Like, I don't think we're at that, you know, that advanced level of AI, but you know, where do you see it? What's it good for today? And what is it not good for? And how do you think it's going to evolve just to tackle that small topic? Just to that's right. That's right. Just, <laughs> just that. It's a little, let's just, let's ease in. You got, you got five let's, ease into the, let's ease into the hard stuff. Go. So I think a way to think about AI is a spectrum. And on one end is normal software and the other end is human intelligence. And too often we start with human intelligence and compare back and we're like, this is still pretty stupid. As opposed to saying, this is so much better than the software it's replacing for the things we're using it for. So a great example is I'm doing some text classifiers right now where you can put in unstructured text and it'll classify it as something. Um, that's just impossible to do with old software, the number of rules you'd have to write and so on. So if you compare AI, as we understand it, to the software it's replacing, it's it's good and getting insanely good. Some of the things, there's these things out there now called foundation models. Some people may have heard of uh, GTP3 and there's a few others, um, all based on, on a new architecture. And it's doing some incredible things. It, it, at one point, The Economist had GPT3 write an article based on a brief that they gave it as text. And then they sent it to the, the judge judging panel of that of this contest. And they, I don't think it got a glow, it got an okay rating, but nobody said, this is obviously a computer. So the thing had written a multi-paragraph, couple page um, essay that a human couldn't tell. They just thought it was a little bit uninspired, which I thought was pretty funny. So I think we're expecting AI. This is It's interesting. When you talk to folks that spend all their time on AI, most of them will tell you the big danger isn't that super intelligence is going to um, take over, at least not within a time frame that we should be caring about right now. It's that we're going to trust AI before it's ready. So we're going to have something running an electric grid, and we don't understand how it's going to break. So the, the way AI solves problems, and by that I mean machine learning and typically deep learning, the way it solves problems is so driven by what you put into it that you may not have put everything into it for it to learn. And that's happened even in, in human society. There was a, in a t- uh, 1998, we had a big um, economic downturn, which is kind of cute in comparison to what's happened since. But at the time, it was a big deal. And some of why that happened was people had non-AI, just normal math models. It didn't include the depression. So they didn't have the right, which is an insane thing not to include when you're talking about crashes, but they didn't. They went back to the 50s, I think it was. Um, And these were Nobel laureates. So the point I'm making is keep in mind that AI as it's currently being used is math. And if you don't put the right data into it, it's not going to know 
all the situations it might cover. You see what I mean? So I think some of why we're it's it's not where we want it to be is because the real world is so full of situations that you don't you can't put in. Like great example is um, autonomous vehicles, which is probably top of your mind when you say it's not where we thought it would be. They thought it'd be easier than it is. They 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 realize that the world's just loaded with, you know, kids wearing brown. You know what I mean? That are hard to see at night. It's like you know what I mean, or rain, or whatever. So I think we expected AI to to leap forward faster than it than it was going to, because re- the real world is just more complex, and we're really good at that. We're really good at dealing with complexity and with um, unforeseen situations, and math is not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also you have other things at play, like, you know, neuroscience is still a, a, you know, relatively new field and we don't, you know, we're, I think we're trying to get to super intelligence and as humans, we're kind of medium intelligence. (laughs) And so I don't think we understand what the models would look like to, to get to, you know, a truly super intelligent AI or, you know, even beyond, uh, you know, into a sentient AI. And, I, but I think that we're, we're fed so much media and especially, you know, Hollywood loves to, to, you know, show us what AI can do and, and robots. And, you know, they, we, of course we come up with dystopian futures like uh, uh, Westworld. Um, so, you know, wh- where do you see, the like what what's it going to take for there to be a real break breakthrough because i think we're hampered by our own limitations in some ways you put up i think you put your finger on exactly the right point and that is if if you asked anybody to describe what consciousness is they kind of can't philosophers or neuroscientists if you asked someone to really describe how the brain works from top to bottom they're pretty good at, at at the cellular level although we've just discovered a ton goes on in the neurons that we didn't know we thought they were kind of dumb switches and all the work happened on the synapses. And it turns out that's not true. There's a whole other layer of computation we, didn't, we weren't aware of. So that exactly proves your point is we don't even know what we're modeling um, in terms of how the human brain works. And we don't really know how certain things work, even philosophically. So there's, I, think the, I don't think there's going to be a breakthrough. I think there's going to be a moment when we realize, oh, my gosh, that's doing things that are getting there. And then, so a great example is it turns out these foundation models can do things they weren't designed to do. So they can, you know, I'm, I'm blanking right now on some of what those are. Um, let me rephrase that. But they, these foundation models have what they call emergent properties. So they're able to recognize, they're made for text, but they, they, they're able to actually do things with, with uh, imagery, which they weren't designed to do. So the point I'm making is, I think as we advance along paths that we understand and then new paths, like new architectures, new approaches, things start to emerge and we learn. Interestingly, computer science has taught us a fair amount about how the brain works because you're trying to replicate what the brain does. And it's like, oh, wow, it has to work this way. And then you realize the brain does or doesn't do it quite like that, but it's opened up whole new questions. So I think um, the, the continued march of the hardware, um, the, the data that we're now able to put into AI but also the fundamental approaches are just, you know, every couple of years, there's a new thing that comes out where they realize this is, this is, wow, this is different. Um, I think, as I say, I don't think you're going to, the other, the other thing that I think is slowing us down, or at least slowing the general public down, is we kind of expect it to pop out as a human-like intelligence. And I don't think there's any reason to expect that. I think that you're going to find 
that it can do surprising things, but does not have its own will, which is the other thing that you don't hear enough, is that it's not obvious that the ability to compute and do stuff provides a will. And by will, I mean consciousness and its own desires and its own goal setting. That's not obvious that that just happens. And yeah. we know this because there are parts of the brain that really drive that and other huge parts of the brain that don't. The visual cortex does not provide a will. It just provides an incredible ability to process the world. You see what I mean? And yeah. it's actually the, the brain stem, older parts that start to do that. Anyway, there's, we don't really know how, but we've got some ideas about parts of the brain that make consciousness because when those parts break, you're not conscious anymore. So yeah. I think that, that actual consciousness will be something that gets designed in instead of something that pops out because we've built a model that's, you know, enormously big. See, that's a really interesting point. And as you know, someone who has like, you know, sort of a left brain, right brain, I'm, I'm very much in my sort of Excel spreadsheet lane on a daily basis, but I'm also a photographer. I would not um, call myself an artist, but there's a creative component to the way I think. And I've seen a lot of interesting applications of AI in the creative community. And though, again, it's still pretty nascent, but, you know, sort of iterative art, um, you know, you look at uh, Dolly, you look at some of the, these AIs that are, that are out there. I, there, there's, I haven't been able to draw any lines of, of proof to this, but there, I have a sense that there, there could be some breakthroughs using this technology in kind of a creative vein that might help us unlock sort of the math component and potentially even one thing we can't replicate is, is, is the way emotions steer sort of our neural pathways. And that's something that we can't code in, right? I mean, we can't code that into an AI. I think there's a lot in what you just said, an enormous amount in what you just said. Let me start with um, AI that's currently doing what we would think of as creative, especially visual. And, and apart from Dolly, which is genuinely new, a lot of what I've seen is gen is like in, in Autodesk has a product, and they're not alone in this, but they've done some good things, where it'll create, based on parameters, a bunch of options for you. And that winds up being the equivalent in an old designer's studio of scrapbooks, where it's, it's allowing you to be spurred to think. Um, and, you know... A, what it produces is, is rarely constructible because it's not considering enough of the world. And I think when you go from there to some of the other points you made about, about emotion, emotion is a, 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 a way our brain gets our body ready to respond to something. So there's a whole area there that, that I think emotion has an impact in terms of connecting to what the body is supposed to do. You're seeing that a little with robotics. You're seeing, and I don't, wouldn't call it emotion, but, but tying some of um, tying some of what AI is learning to do to physical feedback as a way of grounding what it learns in, in reality as opposed to abstractions is an interesting idea. I, I, to be honest with you, there are people really looking into this and, and I, I think there's a lot to the point you were making. I think that'll teach us a lot about how to teach AI to understand the world it's in because one of the big gaps is it has no world knowledge. Right? It's often very narrowly can do a thing. And as soon as you ask it to do an equivalently difficult but different thing, it's no idea. So that you know the, the, the alpha, alpha zero that can beat everybody, including other computers in zero and in, in go and some other things, can't do your taxes, even though that's a lot easier. So I think that your point about emotion speaks to grounding in a physical reality. And I think that may be a way that, that AI starts to have more of an understanding of what the world is. 
um, that's, that's a direction I know people are going. I want to unpack that some more, but we're going to take uh, a momentary break to hear from our sponsors and we will be right back. And we are back with Hugh Seaton uh, doing a deep dive into AI. You know, on the creative front, you know, we talked about, you know, you, you put in certain parameters, especially for these sort of like, you know, creative, if you will, AIs. Um, and and I think you're right. I think we're, we're not going to get the result that we would if we were kind of in charge of our own kind of creative path. But what I do think may happen is we may start to understand the patterns that we're using in our own lives to start coloring thought and the way we process information. And this kind of outside in approach, uh, there's an AI and I can't remember the name of it, but um, it's actually Philip Rosedale's son is is using an AI uh, to generate art. And he has uh, it's not just about the the art parameters. He's actually building the stories of the artists themselves and sort of their childhood. So it's this sort of lyrical story that he's and then pushing into AI. And there's two pieces of this that I find really interesting is, you know, how much of a story do you need and, and how do you construct that so that that it's valuable as far as what you want the output to be of the AI um, but the second piece is it sort of touches on the question that I think all artists deal with, which is when is it done? And with this iterative AI, it sort of starts with a blob, but then it becomes a thing. Um, but then it, you can kind of let it go and it can become sort of another thing. And I think that that concept as well starts to just get really interesting. I don't know where the the business applications might be for that, but in terms of thought process and how we build the inputs for AI, I'd love your opinion on, you know, <laughs> what we can let loose in the creative world. Yeah. One of the things that um, an economist out of uh, University of Toronto, where the kind of modern deep learning found its first renaissance, um, a guy named Ajay Agrawal wrote a great book called Prediction Machines. And his point is when you make an input really, really cheap, it does a few things. One is it makes other inputs more valuable because now a piece of the, of the cost equation is lower. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, the other thing, though, is people start to use it in ways that you never thought of. So I think that one of the things that software generally and AI specifically will be able to do is make certain parts of content production so inexpensive that they become background. And some of that is, imagine an artist sets a, a starting point and maybe some waypoints and the AI fills in the gap and they're able to tune it along the way. So I think you can imagine new forms of media emerging. I think you're going to see everything from buildings to games to you know other forms of multimedia experience where AI is able to make worlds that are way bigger than you could ever pay a group of people to produce for you. It may not have quite the same level of surprises along the way, but the reality is you don't always pay attention to surprises anyway. So I think you put your finger on something. And, and um, I think there's a number of artists who are asking this question is, if I can automate some of the execution, and really it's up to me to imagine the starting point, the end point, or, or the parameters, whatever it is, I don't have to sit there and draw every line. I don't have to sit there and you know work out every frame. I believe that that's going to wind up being a whole new area of creativity 
I think I have a feeling it'll be a generational divide where people that are used to one form of expression have a little trouble imagining how to use that, but that's always been true. I mean, you know, people that did print had trouble with video until people that grew up in video knew how to do video. Um, so I think you'll find the same thing is that these new AI will enable, or the tools that AI makes possible will enable new forms of expression. And it's really up to, you know, I saw this in VR a lot where you'd have technologists who really um, leaned into the creative side and creatives who took the time to learn the technology and you, you just, some beautiful things were created. I think that's probably going to be true here. I have a feeling that the, 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 the thing that you want, the tool that you want is going to be so specific that someone's going to have to make it for themselves instead of there being, you know, an AI storyteller. I'm sure that'll happen too. But at the, the avant-garde that you're talking about, where someone has to be really committed and really just keep hammering away until it's what they want, they'll probably have to spin their own, you know, connect this AI to that AI, but that's okay. That, that happens yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of where we need to go. And, and you touched on something that I, that I think actually will be, you know, part of this kind of next evolution. But you, you mentioned world building. I think that is sort of the next paradigm in the, to use an overuse word, but um, in, in, in storytelling that, you know, in that it, stories will follow this more of a kind of game construct with these branching narratives, things will be happening in real time. But from a production standpoint, building a world of that size is going to require many, many, many technologies that we're, we're not using to their sort of fullest extent today. I think uh, you're I, used to, sorry, you're saying? No, but I think, but I think you're right. I think we're going to have these new media forms emerge. Well, your use of the word paradigm is a really good one. So, you know, paradigm means a set of new options. I, I like that idea is that, that, you know, AI brings in a set of new options that, that you can use. And it's not just AI. There's a bunch of stuff going on in, in everything from graphics to the underlying hardware and all that, but also people's ability to use them. Like it, it's not, if you hand someone a tool they've never seen before, they're, they're just going to do what they used to do with a better tool, as opposed to spending time with it and really exploring and being courageous enough to try new things and fail with them a little bit. Cause you know what, that's kind of ugly or I don't really like that experience. So let's stop that and try something else. That's not a, that doesn't feel like a productive way to spend your time. So you got to be okay being unproductive while you explore some dead, you know, some blind alleys. And then, you know, if we sort of move back a little bit, you know, there's so much talk and I have, you know, clients talking about this, like, you know, they want to be, they want to have smart buildings, of course, but then, you know, they, they, they want to be able to wire into smart cities. And we sort of talk about all of these concepts, like they're simple and they really are already in practice today. There are elements of them, but, you know, I, I, I don't believe that there's an example of a true smart city where, you know, they are, are optimizing, you know, dynamically, uh, you know, all the services, all the processes, you know, from, from building, you know, maintenance life cycle to traffic lights and everything in between. Um, but I, but I, I, I do see that we're moving towards that, but the amount of data that we are going to have to manage and parse dynamically in order for this vision of the city of the future. I mean, I think it's really the future. I mean, how far along are we and how real are, are we of achieving this notion of the true smart city? You know, I, people take as read that 
that that's obviously a good thing. That that wiring everything all together is going to pay out and going to be worth it. I don't. I don't think that case has been proven. I think people take it as it as an obvious, and I don't know that that's right. And I say that because a lot of buildings, as currently built, you don't have a lot of levers to pull. So knowing what's going on, it, what are you going to change? Uh, maintenance schedules are are you know you can they're already pretty good software. So I think that that to to think about a smart city, you need to define it a little better than it's currently being defined. Um, in that you've got sensors everywhere, but okay, in abstract, that sounds like it would be great, but what sensors do you mean? Which ones are gonna be, are gonna be adding value? Where people are, they kind of have that now. You don't even need that to be wired up. You can, you can just have a, a light that senses people and those have been around for a while. So I think that the idea of, of a smart building or a smart city sounds great when you're doing math in abstract or you're just saying, wouldn't it be great if it could do this or this? But it needs to be thought of from the ground up. It needs to be not just something you do later. So you can think about the the building process from a you know a, a real estate person says I I I have this this land or I'm going to get this land and I'm going to model the heck out of how we're going to monetize that. And they're incredibly good at that. They then go usually typically to an architect. They then go to you know a specifier. It's near and dear to my heart. Then somebody the GC says okay. We're going to go cost that out. They get a bunch of trade people to come back with costs and so on and so forth. I tell you all this because the smart city conversation typically happens after all of that, when they've handed it over to the owner again, and it's usually a different part of the owner now. It's not the finance folks, it's the ops folks. And they now have to say, oh, let's censor things up. It wasn't at the beginning. It was at the very end of of the life cycle. So if we really want to think about how to make buildings and cities smart, it needs to go way upstream. And the incentives to do that are unclear for two reasons. One is not every person who's commissioning a building is going to run the building later. That happens a lot less than you'd think. Um, but also along the way, the GC has zero incentive in making it a better run company uh, building because their job is to, to deliver on the contract as efficiently and safely as they can. And that's true downstream for the trades and so on. So the reason I bring all this up is it, we're not structured right now for smart buildings and smart cities to be really penetrating the market because of the structure of the market, except for some things like Microsoft is doing some great things. You may have heard of Sala Eckhart's make she she does have some great thoughts on this. I think she's been on your podcast. She's she's but, our only but, one that the only other one that's been on twice too. <laughs> that's right. I mean great company then. So she's she's great. But you know, a place like Microsoft that builds a lot of buildings and often a lot of the same buildings that are already very data dense in terms of data centers and so on, they're going to think one way and be way further along because again they're they're building often a lot of the same kind of building, even if the innards are, are, are advancing all the time. And again, the running of that thing, uh, of a data center, is so dependent on keeping the temperature right. And, and you know, there was a story about how Google applied one of their DeepMind AIs to their own uh, data centers, and it saved 40% of electricity. It just shows you how, how running it well will have enormous economic impact. Is that is true for a 50-year-old high-rise in New York? It's hard, it's hard to say. It's hard to say how you would get 40% of, of you know, running costs savings from, from you know, toggling something. I just, there, aren't that many, there aren't as many levers to pull, is my point. So I think that, that the barrier to smart buildings and smart cities is a clear demonstration that it's worth doing this from soup to nuts. And then the owner saying it's worth doing this from soup to nuts. And, and Mr. Architect and Specifier, this should be part of how you, how you build from the ground up, as opposed to later on the ops team saying, 
oh, we should, we should instrument this because it's just, it's, it's not built into how the building is. You don't have the, the, the levers to pull to act on whatever your sensors are going to tell you. You know what I mean? And you also haven't chosen all of the mechanical things that go into running a building. You haven't chosen them on the assumption that they're going to have really good data to operate better. You see what I mean? So there's dozens and hundreds of choices along the way. Because a great example is I've got this GE thing, this, I don't know, chiller, let's say, for my big, and it's, it's going to be IoT enabled, but they ran out of them. So then the, the mechanical contractor is going to say, well, I've got one just like it down the road from Carrier. It may not be IoT enabled, but because that wasn't part of the initial design or it wasn't strongly argued for, you now have one key element that isn't, that isn't IoT enabled, and you're going to have to either retrofit it or do without. That yeah. sort of thing happens a ton unless the owner is saying, this is a critical uh, part of what of the decisions that I want you making is that it can hook into the grid that we're building and we've got a data center in the basement that can handle all this and all that stuff. So I think that it's a great vision. It just requires a lot more from upstream folks than they presently are incentivized to worry about. Well, I, I would even take it a step further. And it's a lot of the work I, you know, I do with corporates and they have sort of a pouty face when, when they come in, but we have to push them out the door on the way out is, is what do you want like what, what are the products and services of the future, but how do we want to live in 20, 25, 30, 50 years, or how do we want our children to live? And I, and I think that, that we miss a lot of the human factors again, a lot, you know, a lot of these are sort of trite sayings that are being bandied around in, in, in terms of technology, but there are elements of this that I think we're missing. And, and as humans, we've kind of lost the ability through our lives to, to just sort of fantasize about what we want the world to be like. And then now you add this layer of, you know, the hype cycle of the metaverse, like, oh, now we're going to live in virtual worlds all day. We're not, we're going to live in the real world for a very long time. They're going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of digitization around us, but I think the stuff that all of us are missing as a global village is what do we actually want the future to look like? Does anyone have an answer to that? I would argue the AIA spends a lot of time thinking about that. So it's so the American Institute of Architects. They they think like that. Um, I mean, it's their job as architects. It's one part of their job as architects. So I do think people are thinking like that. I think that that there's always a disconnect between what an architect sees as possibly possible and what a an owner may have modeled as what they want the building to be used for. They're also to the point I think you're making is Within a building is one thing, but a building within the context of that block does get thought about, but you don't you don't get to control a lot of it. Usually it's here's where we are, let's respond well to our community, as opposed to here's shape, here's how we shape that block. And I, you know, the hard part is once in a while you'll have um a, a policy or a a set of kind of rules that try to make the, the block operate one way or the part of the city. Zoning does that to some degree. Really blunt instrument, really blunt instrument. Because are you going to go to, you know, someone who's raised $250 million to put a building in there and say, I need it to do these things? That's a hard thing to do. It's hard to go to an owner or a real estate company and say, we've got a vision for this block. And I know you've raised all that money based on some assumptions. We're going to change some of those assumptions and we need you to do some, some fundamental things about how you build your building. So it fits within our vision for where this is going to be in 30 years. That does that should be happening. I'm sure in some cases it does, especially when one organization is building a campus. 
But that's that's what you would need to do what you're describing, to have a smart city that is really deeply smart. So the buildings are, are coordinating with each other on microgrids and all that stuff. That mm-hmm. assumes that you're asking people that are have gone to a bank and said, we, we've done it this way for 20, 30 years, and we're doing it that way again, and say to them, no, no, you can't do it that way. We're asking you to do it this way, and we can't really model the, the economics of some of it, but trust us, it'll work. It's a hard one to do. Especially yeah. when trust us, it'll work in the building world doesn't always, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't work. And oh my gosh, I mean, San Francisco currently has a tower that's moving faster than it should be because trust us, it'll work. And they keep trying new things because it's a really hard problem. So yeah. when things go wrong with a building, it's tough to fix, which I think slows people down and slows some of the smart city argument down is that you're asking for coordination and there's a whole line of decisions that got to the funding that got you to be able to build the thing that, you know, that's not necessarily aligned upstream. Yeah. Now, and I I think it also has to be sort of endemic within the the culture. You know, I've been spending a lot of time in Dubai. I mean, it's a 50-year-old city, effectively. And, you know, they, they have within their culture, they want to be the smartest, the the biggest, the most efficient. Um, KSA with the Neom project, you know, building from the ground up. But very quickly, the economics of these scenarios starts to become a driver, and they're kind of anathema to one another. I mean, but but I love the idea. Like you get to just start with literally a blank canvas. And and build this vision, but but again, I'm I'm wondering at what point does vision, you know, kind of hit reality, and and then what impact is that going to have? You know, it's an interesting thought experiment. Is a lot of times you look at a a, a place with a pol- political system that is, let's say, less consultative than the U.S. is. How's that for being euphemistic? And it seems like, oh my God, they can get it done. They can execute. Look at they got all this done. China. I spent ten years in China. China built some built you know the, the world's largest high speed rail. Some incredible percentage of it is not making money right now. So what looked like the crown jewel of of their of their progress has turned into a real problem because there are some lines that this is why Amtrak is the way it is in the U.S. because it's not that easy to have a functioning slightly aging rail system that makes money. So otherwise you're pumping tax money into it or you you start to you know mothball some of your lines. In the U.S., we made the decision to make our rail line more about freight, which pays for itself, um, with the exception of the Northeast Corridor. But my point is, when you look at at what, so NEOM is another example, is basically one person is providing the will and decision-making, and then there's a hierarchy under him. What if he's wrong? What if this was a bad idea? So the, 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 the flip side of being really able to make things happen is when you're wrong, everybody has to live with the fact that you were wrong. And this is why, for all the fact that in the US, we grumble like crazy about how hard it is to get things built. It is, and it's probably it's too hard, harder than it should be, for sure. The flip side is when people get to do things quickly just because some senior leader who's been in power for maybe long enough that their vision is a little on the warp side, decides something is necessary. You now have to live with all those resources being stuck in something someone doesn't necessarily need anymore. I mean, Olympics are fantastic examples of this. Billions go into, into buildings that are usually not where they're needed anymore. Um, mm. You know what I mean? And that's, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's becoming a bit of a curse on, on, like for a, a, a municipality to say yes to that means they either have to be disciplined, like London kind of was, 
or not so much like Beijing definitely wasn't. And now there's big relics that you get to pass. So I think that, that that's another part of the smart city problem is if the market doesn't solve that, if it is because the government comes in and says, you have to do this, are they right? And, and did we put too many resources in a temporary technology when something else, great example of that. One of the things you're seeing with IoT is internet of things is it isn't necessary to place a sensor there for certain things like it used to be. You used to need motion sensors. Now you don't, machine vision takes care of it for you. So the camera that you have there for security can now be used for other things. You know what I mean? So if you'd invested a ton of money on motion sensors, you don't need them as much anymore because you've got cameras all over the place. So I think that that this idea that, gosh, I wish we could just snap our fingers and make it happen. The flip side is the world is really complicated and you, you cannot know all of what goes into the success or failure of a decision. You know what I mean? So making it in a consultative way and making it in a slower way has its appeal. Yeah. 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 I mean, but you bring up an interesting point because, um, you know, I, I was talking with a group who are, who are um, doing some work with the Olympic Committee for the 2024 Paris Games. And that could be an interesting opportunity because in a way it's a microcosm. In a way there's a deadline. It needs to be built. In a way there, you know, it, it does need to leverage, you know, some of the latest, most kind of cutting edge technology. So they could be kind of interesting test beds, you know, Expo uh, in Dubai, there's going to be another one in five years, wherever it's going to move to next year or next in the next five years. You know, they could be, I think, a great microcosm and, and test bed for how this technology evolves and also built with, I think, I think there was a whole plan already in place when Expo was going to leave that it was going to turn into sort of this live work play, right? So they already had plans for that. And that, uh, I, I think it's hard to serve two masters, but at the same time, I like the fact that there was some vision. It's like, look, we, we, we don't want to spend billions building this. And then it's mm-hmm. just nothing, right? It's just a museum. Um, like how do we utilize it? And, and maybe that's a strategy moving forward is to sort of use these things that are, that are being built that have a deadline and and start to push the the boundaries of the technology in that construct. See what works and see what doesn't. I think that's a, a, a absolutely valid point. Um, the flip side is most of those things, including Dubai, are funded by something else, which makes them less necessary to be economic. Whatever the thing is. In contrast, some of the things you're seeing is the natural progression of products. Often they'll include more and more sensors, and they're already networked. So I have a feeling that some of what we would want a smart city or a smart building to do will be either approximated or done by proxy from other things, um, whether it's the you know phones that we're wearing, whether, I mean, what happens when, you know, let's hope it's in a year when a- AR glasses start to become more and more of a real thing. I mean, we don't expect next year to be what everyone's hoping for. It's going to be some kind of a blend, but so what? When Apple gets into it, you know what I mean? Who wore a smart Who wore a smartwatch before the Apple Watch? Some people did, but yeah. not so many. Now it's crazy when, like, finding someone without an Apple Watch on in, in a lot of rooms is like this is funny. So I have a feeling that when you start to be able to have sensors on your face that are looking at the world all the time, I think it'll open up the ability to take some of that information, and do things with it. I don't know what, but that's the point. Just like that, the, the comment about AI making prediction i didn't finish i didn't finish that whole point that that um dr agrawal made when you make prediction 
so cheap that you can do it all the time, it starts finding new ways to be useful. Things like, you know, Google Lens can tell you what dog breed or what, what, uh, what bird you're looking at. I mean, that's not, maybe not the most earth-shaking change, but it speaks to the fact that all that is what we would call prediction in, in mathematically. So I think that you'll find that, that the way we get there isn't what we think it is. it is. I don't think it's going to be, let's design this from top to bottom. I think it's, we're iterating there. So the next time we build a big building or build a campus, we have all these tools to work with. And to your point, hey, they did something really cool in Paris. Let's get that team over here to, to consult. So I think both probably wind up being true is, is you know, test beds wind up teaching us more about integration and, and larger scale. An example that Oracle has built something outside of London. I think it's, it's in England. Um, that's their second innovation campus. And it's all about large scale integration of technology. It, they just launched it like, I'm not kidding, like a couple of days ago, I think really very recently. And they had one in, in the Chicago area, which also was pretty amazing, but they purposely built the one in London where there's like a little rail line and there's a, a, I don't know, a building, I haven't seen it, but but I, the guy that runs it, Birchin, told me about it. So that's an example of one company saying, we provide data services at scale and you know Oracle's one of the big players. How can we take what we're good at and apply that across you know, something that is city scale or even bigger, which I think is interesting. So to the point you're making, that is a test bed. It's a narrow one because it's about their set of technologies, but you better believe they're pulling things in from the telecoms and from Samsung and whoever else to feed data into what they're otherwise doing, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think, but I think also, you know, to to your point, the 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 piece that is sort of missing in all this is 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 the human factors. And so, what are, what do we want? Like, I use lens when I'm abroad to see what's on a package when I'm trying to like buy, you know buy something, and I have no idea what the language is, right? So, you know, how will how do people use the technology? What are the sensors and all of this information that's around us? What is it good for? What are we going to start drawing down from the cloud in real time? And we don't know that because the AR glasses aren't really out there. We don't know how we're going to interact with this, you know, sort of AR cloud and digital layer yet because we, we're missing one of the major the key data points is like, what do people want from it? Again, what do people want from this technology? I think this is where the kind of multitude of people helps us to process something that you couldn't predict. So I think you, you've got artists who are going to do cool new things with it. AI, AI, excuse me, virtual reality wouldn't be where it is if there weren't crazy artists building cool stuff. I mean, people in Brooklyn I knew that would spend like eight hours a day in their in their Vive, which is, I mean, talk about a sore neck. Um, I think that's one, one end of the spectrum, but also technologists saying, you know, you could do this and let's build an app on top of that thing. So I think, again, it's, it's, a, it's not a, a moment when we've reached the new future. It's, it's an evolution of more and more little pieces coming together and people discovering or inventing what they want to do with it. And then new patterns emerging. No one could have said smartphones are going to make us do the things we do. I mean, online dating prior to that or finding a house or we were joking the other day about in my life prior to Google Maps, I probably looked at a map three times, literally. And one of those was using MapQuest, which was broken. So I actually had to get out and ask us, you know what I mean? Like, now, I went up the road to talk to an agency that was a mile and a half from me, and I used Google Maps to get there. 
Why? I probably could have gotten turn by turn, but I didn't have to. And I could just be confident the whole way. And if something changed, I actually at one point wanted to go around something. So the point I'm making is that there's new human behavior that emerges when people use it. But I love the fact that, you know, your your mind, you, you keep thinking about what an artist might do or, you know, how human behavior will emerge, will either be designed or emerge. I think it'll be both. I mean, that's somewhat an artist can do is imagine for us how we might use something or experience something in a way that, you know, me as a, you know, founder of a company may not have time to. Uh, that, that's what is great about society, right? Is that that you've got different people who are going to think of different things and care about different things. And they may, because they care more about it, show you something you didn't care enough to go discover on your own. And, but that's, that's from a thousand angles. You know what I mean? Like one person cares about the tech side of it. Another says, you know, you can change the color. Another one says, you know, you can change your emoji or whatever. I wouldn't have, that happens to me all the time. In fact, someone quite recently told me I can change how my name shows up in Zoom. <laughs> it's an illustration no. of the point. Exactly right. I now go it's forward. Teaching. I can it's be a dot anytime I want from now on. No, I love that you do that with maps because I do the same thing. Like I don't want the actual directions. I just want to see the map and I just, you know, I search for the place I'm going, but I, I'm, there may be a reason I want to, I want to see that particular block or I want to go this way, or I know that the traffic along the beach will be more. So I go inland or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I, and I'm uh, of course a big believer in, in technology sort of, you know, augmenting our lives and not, and not taking it over. Um, I think we're, uh, I think, I think we have the choice how, how technology evolves and how we want to play in that realm. I think you're right. And, and as a, you know, as a follow on from some earlier points, the fear that people had that AI is going to take over jobs and, oh my gosh, if I see another robot as an illustration of AI, which is just kind of distracting, um, I think was overblown, but you know, in line with my point a moment ago about society helping us, like, like when I, by that, I mean, lots of people thinking independently. One of the, the benefits of all of the freaking out that happened about five years ago about AI is we did start thinking about the ethics of it. We did start thinking, how do you think about a workforce when, you know, skills are changing quickly? Or how do you think about um, everything from what, you know, are we going to trust this thing to make decisions that have a moral component? Any, anything from, from hiring somebody to even filtering, right? And, and we wouldn't have thought of that if we didn't kind of skip ahead and say, oh my gosh, this is going to be so smart. So the fact that we lost our minds a little and, and everyone got pretty freaky about it was probably good because we thought ahead to some of the harder, harder to argue and harder to kind of pin down ethical questions. Lots of people know about the trolley problem now which is crazy because I don't know how old that is, but it's an old, an old thought experiment. You know, the one where it's, you can go this way and kill one or go that way. What do you do? So that, but that's, a, you're going to ask a machine at some point, if it's operating a motor vehicle, it's going to make decisions like that. Decision. So I know what the, I would never would have known that if we hadn't started that conversation and, you know, books and so on. So, I, and, and, you know, that, I get I get a little touchy when people talk about the bias thing because it it feels like we've had the same conversation over and over again and yet everyone is aware of it now in a way they might not have before. If you get a 25-year-old computer scientist who's being asked to deliver on deadline, they're going to be worried about shipping sometimes more than they might have been about bias unless you make it everyone's concern which that whole bunch of stuff did. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that thinking ahead even if we're a little disappointed that we don't have you know, everyone who grew up on the Jetsons is just living with constant disappointment anyway. I mean, where, you know what I mean? I have to drive. I a, read, a, where, 
So the, I, that is one of my, you know, cause I'm, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone in, in a moment, but like, where's that, that like little walkway and, and, you know, Jane stands on it and the little, you know, creatures come and put her thing on, they do her nails, they do her hair. Like, where is that? I Hong need Kong. that. Yeah, Hong exactly. Kong actually has an escalator that does a lot of that, which is pretty funny. That, that is but. like, that is, that is one of my, my, you know, things that, that, I, I want in 20, 25 years, but I sort of want it now because I have been waiting 20, 25 years for it. So as much as I hate to let you go, um, I'll ask you our, our final question, which is uh, if you can project yourself 20, 25 years into the future and you can bring with you or just have a product or service that just makes you personally happy. It doesn't have to do anything for anybody else. It's just something that makes your life better in some way. What would it be and what would it do? I'm a real fan of um, instrumented health. So for me, uh, whether it's a watch or whatever, that really gives me a sense of where my body is as I'm working out or as I'm doing something else. I think that to me is, and the ability to do something about it, which who knows what that's going to mean, but but really technologically enabled health. And I'll tell you what, in 20 years, that's going to be top of mind. So I think yeah. I think what you're seeing with the Microsofts and the Amazons and and Google to some degree getting into health, I I want to see where that goes because I think it'll be pretty exciting. That's great. I'm right there with you, and I also think the more that we are aware and responsible for our own well-being, we'll start to see incredibly positive results from that um, in our overall health. So I'm right there with you, well, Hugh. As always. An amazing chat. Great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining us for the second time today. Today, the second time ever. Uh, and um, and I think we may have to have you back for a third time next year. This time, same time next year. I'll be here. Well, thanks for having me again. I've, I've enjoyed it as always. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much, you. 